Section 3 of The Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 1, Chapter 3, The Electorate. It may be as well to give here some account of the size and importance of King George's continental dominions. It has always been the custom to speak contemptuously of them, as if they gave no addition to the strength of England, but were in every way an encumbrance. Assertions to this effect are constantly made, but it is difficult to find any accurate estimate of the size of the electorate. Neither contemporary nor recent historians furnish facts. There are various points of view from which the comparison can be made. Area, population, army, revenue. With respect to area, it would seem as if King George's continental dominions amounted to between one-fourth and one-fifth of the area of England and Wales. The electorate was smaller than Scotland, much larger than Wales. If we compare it with the United Kingdom, then, as the area of Scotland and Ireland together is about equal to that of England and Wales, we may say that it was one-ninth, in itself no despicable territorial addition. It is always difficult to discover the population of a country in the days before it was usual to take a census. The population of England at the accession of King George I is variably estimated between five and seven millions. It is still more difficult to guess the population of the electorate. Mr. Consul Kerr took some trouble to obtain information about the chief towns a few years earlier. He gives the number of houses, as they were given to me, not only from the surveyors and city carpenters, but from the books of hearth money and books of fair pounding, where such taxes are paid. The capital is not at the head of the list. The three largest towns, as given by Mr. Consul Kerr, are Lunenburg, 3,100 houses, Osnaburg, 2,200 houses, and Hannover, 1,850 houses. Now, Osnaburg was not, strictly speaking, in Hanover at all, as the map will show. It was the capital of the bishopric of Osnaburg, which by a curious arrangement of the Treaty of Westphalia was to be governed alternately by a Roman Catholic and a Protestant bishop. In 1688, the year when these facts were collected, a Protestant ruled. Then, from 1692 to 1716, a Catholic, who was succeeded by Augustus, brother of George I, who died in 1728. Nor was it until 1803 that Osnabrück, as it ought to be called, was secularized and embodied in Hanover. We have, therefore, only two towns in the electorate of any considerable size, Next to these are Stade, Verden, Zell, Klausthal, and Gödigen, where at a later date George I founded a famous university. The bishopric of Bremen contained no very large town, for the city of Bremen was an independent free town and did not go with the bishopric. But Stade, from its neighborhood to the mouth of the Elbe, was of considerable importance. Harburg, also near Hamburg, was a center of trade, and there was in the south the very ancient capital of Halmon, but its population was not large. In the mining districts, no doubt, the numbers to the square mile would be large, but elsewhere, with few towns and not many villages and an agricultural population, it cannot have been great. 
the largest town, Lunenburg, would be a little more than half the size of Bristol. The estimate hardly rises above guesswork, but we may infer that the whole population of the electorate did not exceed half a million, less than one-tenth of the population of England and Wales, less than the population of London, which had already began to be disproportionate in its growth. The army of the electorate was very large in proportion to the population. Again we have a statement made by Mr. Consul Kerr. We find that the houses of Wolfenbüttel and Lüneburg kept on foot in the years 1683 through 4 an army of 18,000 foot and 9,000 horse, whereof Ernest Augustus, at his own expense, entertained 10,000 foot and 5,000 horse in his dominions. These he considerably augmented afterwards. In this respect, the electorate comes nearest to the United Kingdom. The peace footing of the English army after the Peace of Utrecht was fixed at 8,000 men in Great Britain and 11,000 more in the plantations, that is, colonies, and abroad. There was still in England a strong dislike of a standing army. Such was not felt at any rate, not expressed on the continent. In proportion to the size and importance of states, the armies of continental powers have always been much in excess of the English army, chiefly for the reason that England's first line of defense is the navy. But according to the old proverb, money is the sinews of war, and we may ask, how did the two stand as regards revenue? In a speech delivered in the House of Lords in January 1739, Lord Chesterfield spoke with bitter irony of England. So happily annexed to His Majesty's German dominions, and made this statement about the national resources. The whole revenues of the electorate, at the time of His late Majesty's accession to the throne of these realms, did not amount to more than three hundred thousand pounds a year. The annual revenue of England at the same time, 1714, was under five millions. A year or two before, it had reached the figure of five and three-quarters millions. The expenditure on the debt alone took more than half the revenue. Even then, it may be seen, England was richer than her neighbors. At the union with Scotland, the share of the latter in the land tax was fixed at one-fortieth. To sum up, therefore, the electorate stood to the United Kingdom in the following proportions. As far as area was concerned, about one-ninth. In population, about one-twelfth. In military strength, much nearer an equality to the English army on its peace footing, and not counting the navy. In national revenue, about one-twentieth. The wealth of the two nations may perhaps have borne the same proportion as the revenue. England was already rising to prominence as a trading community, and London was certainly the chief commercial city of the world. No doubt the Hanoverians, when they saw London first thought what the Prussian General Blücher is reported to have expressed a century later, what plunder! It was a wealthy inheritance that George, elector of Brunswick-Luneburg, was about to take up. The union with Hanover was always unpopular in England, more unpopular even than the first two sovereigns themselves, who, although not of a character to win their subjects' love, yet represented a principle. 
if you wish the pretender never to be king of England, said a witty lord, have him made elector of Hanover. It is quite certain the English people will never take another king from there. The belief was general that poor Germans had come to plunder the richer English. This belief is expressed in the humorous story of the Hanoverian court lady whose carriage was mobbed in London. Putting her head out of the carriage window, she said in broken English, Peace, good people, have you not come for all of your goods? Meaning for the good of all of you. Yes, promptly replied one of the mob, and for our chattels too. The same thought is involved in Lord Chesterfield's complaint when, after estimating the paltry revenue of the electorate, he adds, and yet, soon afterwards, the considerable purchases of Bremen and Verden were made for above five hundred thousand pounds sterling. At least a million sterling has been laid out over and above in new acquisitions. It may be asked why English ministers acquiesced in these purchases with English money. And answer must be made that they looked upon the electorate and the United Kingdom as permanently joined, so that additions to the one were acquisitions for the whole. During our Hanoverian period there is a constant complaint that England is steered by a Hanoverian rudder, just as in William III's reign the charge was that our rudder was Dutch. William used England gladly to forward projects dear to his heart, but they were projects for the good of Europe, and not only of Holland. The policy of the first two Georges cannot be described as European. There is no doubt that they preferred their continental home to their English kingdom, that they always left the latter with pleasure and returned to it with regret, and that they favored Hanoverians. Many Englishmen disliked this strongly, but felt that it was not an unreasonable price to pay for the exclusion of the Stuarts. It is, however, a little curious that relief was not sought in a method suggested by Sir Robert Walpole shortly before his fall. One day, reports Speaker Onslow, he took me aside and said, What will you say, Speaker, if this hand of mine shall bring a message from the King to the House of Commons, declaring his consent to having any of his family after his own death to be made by Act of Parliament incapable of inheriting and enjoying the crown and possessing the electoral dominions at the same time. My answer was, Sir, it will be as a message from heaven. The message, however, never came. Exactly a century after the accession of King George I, the electorate, which, with the fall of the Holy Roman Empire in 1806, had ceased to be an electorate, was at the Congress of Vienna converted into the Kingdom of Hanover. Then, for the first time, Hanover properly only the name of the city, though often popularly used for the electorate of Brunswick-Luneburg, became the name of the state. On the accession of Queen Victoria in 1837, the long-desired separation took place because the Salic law prevented the kingdom of Hanover passing into female hands. The wisdom of Walpole's suggestion in the previous century has been shown by the avoidance of the very serious complications that would have arisen in 1866 if Hanover and England had possessed the same ruler. In that year, Hanover took the side of Austria against Prussia, and the latter, victorious in the Seven Weeks' War, 
absorbed all the powers of North Germany that were opposed to her. Had England then been united with Hanover, the war would have attained much larger proportions and must have been much more serious. The Union of Germany might have been indefinitely retarded. It would be invidious to make comparisons between the culture and civilization of Hanover and England, but it is pleasant to call to mind the names and careers of their greatest men. A story runs that once George I was complimented on having two such possessions as England and his electorate, and that he replied that he considered it a far greater honor to have amongst his subjects two such men as Sir Isaac Newton and Leibniz. Whether this story be true or not, certainly of all the subjects in his continental dominions, none was so famous as the latter philosopher, some little account of whom may be of interest. Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz was born in 1646 at Leipzig, where his father was a university professor. When he was only six, he lost his father, inheriting from him a large library of books which he eagerly read. As a boy, he learned many things, and as a young man, studied in turn at three different universities. Classics, philosophy, mathematics, and law all claimed his attention, nor did he even disdain to concern himself with alchemy. In childhood, a boy prodigy. Throughout life, Leibniz was regarded as a kind of universal genius. He wrote on philosophical questions, on theological, on legal, and historical. On one occasion, George I called him a living dictionary. When Leibniz was about 30, he was invited by the Duke of Brunswick-Luneburg, whose successors afterwards became electors, to take up his residence at the court of Hanover, where he was treated with great kindness and most highly valued, especially by the electress Sophia. The original design was that Leibniz should write the history of the House of Brunswick. It reads like a satire on German thoroughness to hear that the preparations which Leibniz thought necessary for so important a work carried him back as a preliminary to a study of geology so as to know the state of the world before the creation. Probably his most famous book is his Theodicia, a treatise on theology and philosophy written to justify the ways of God to man. In his later years, Leibniz had an unfortunate controversy with Newton, each claiming to have first discovered the doctrine of the differential calculus. The truth was that both had made the same discovery independently and nearly simultaneously. Some two years after the succession of King George to the throne, Leibniz died. He had been suffering badly from the gout and possessing some knowledge of medicine, of what subject, indeed, did he not know something, he treated himself with a new remedy, and the cure proved fatal to him within the space of an hour. End of Section 3